Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Hunters of America podcast. We have Brian Rimza as our guest speaker today. A lot of people in Arizona know who he is. He's an avid archer, holds a lot of records with the bow hunting in Arizona record book. He and his wife are very, very experienced hunters, have been involved in the hunting industry and whatnot in Arizona for quite some time. He's very skilled in the draw um, how to apply for different applications, how to apply for different animals in those draws. Um, Arizona switching over to a lot of the electronic versions of your tags and harvesting records and lots of upcoming proposals pertaining to that. So we're thankful that we have Brian today to talk about that. Hopefully if you guys have questions for future podcasts or if you have questions when we have people on since none of our episodes are live, feel free to reach out to us. Um, we've been asking for that in the past, but if you have questions, we can reach back out to our guests if you don't feel comfortable reaching them on their websites or calling them. So stay tuned, and we will be listening to Brian speak about all things on the guideline process, the upcoming webinars, harvesting reports, and whatnot. Thank you. All right, everyone, welcome again to another Christian Hunters of America podcast. Uh, we got Mike in studio, as always, my co-host. How are you, Mike? We are doing great today. How are you, Chet? I'm doing wonderful. Um, we are excited to have a special guest on. Some of you probably have known him or heard him on other podcasts before. He is very well known in the archery community in Arizona, holds quite a few uh, different record books, and is on the board for Arizona Bow Hunters and Arizona uh, Record Book. Um, it's our special little archery record book that uh, we've had Marvin speak about in the past. Anyway, without further ado, we'd like to welcome Brian Rimza. Um, he is speaking with us on, like I said previously, everything about the current proposals, the draw process, why it's important to, to understand the different aspects of the draw. How are you, Brian? I'm doing good, Chad. How are you? Doing great, doing great. Um, for the few people that don't know you that are listening outside of Arizona, can you give us a, a brief introduction um, to who you are and how long you've been hunting and just a little general little general about yourself, please? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm born and raised in Arizona. I've lived here for 40 years. I was fortunate when growing up to have a dad who was pretty active in the outdoors and active in hunting. And not only was he active, but he was pretty good at what he did. So, I mean, I was uh, able to kind of experience what I would consider, you know, a good way to do things. And I was from that, I was able to experience success um, at an early age and, you know, just kind of hooked me into the outdoors and uh, kind of what it has to offer in Arizona. And so, you know, growing up through the years, I've been fortunate to draw some good tags in Arizona. Um, and you you know, I kind of have a passion for wildlife. I, I went to University of Arizona and got a um, biology degree in uh, basically wildlife biology. I worked for Game and Fish for two years when I was in college. I uh, spent a bunch of time out in the desert down there looking at coos deer and doing different things uh, for Game and Fish, which was something obviously I, I enjoyed. And so, you know, it's just it's a passion of mine. Um, I've kind of taken it, I would say, kind of to the next level. You know, I do what I can to and to make the most of the opportunities I get in Arizona. And, uh, you know, I like to share those opportunities with other people. I think you guys have 
uh, heard kind of some of my draw statistics and things like that on Jay's on Jay Scott's podcast, and uh, you know, I talk about some of those things, and we'll talk about some of that stuff here. But yeah, that's just kind of you know what I do. I am the uh, chairman of the Bow Hunting and Arizona Record Book Committee, and I'm also on the, the Arizona Bow Hunters Association board. Um, both are kind of two different organizations. The Bow Hunting and Arizona Record Book Committee is focused on maintaining um, archery hunting records within the state of Arizona been around since 1975 some of the uh the old you know kind of the og bow hunters in arizona started it and it's a it's a neat project and we put out new books uh we try we try to do it every eight years and we've been able to maintain that we may be able to get one out sooner this time uh just because we've uh, had some good success selling books and things like that i would encourage you guys if you're interested it has all of the archery harvested animals um that have been entered in the book and we have pretty um pretty good minimum scores to allow people to contribute. We accept Havilena, you know, we accept Velvet entries. So it's, it's just a neat, neat opportunity. And then the Arizona Bow Hunters Association is, you know, a really good organization that focuses on kind of maintaining some of the bow hunters' rights within the state of Arizona. They're kind of, they can lobby for bow hunters and work with the commission to try and avoid, you know, some changes that we, we believe would be detrimental and just kind of give you a voice um, with the commission. So those are kind of the things that I've kind of do right now. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot going on with the commission and the new hunt guidelines and hunt recommendations and, and kind of how that's going to look as far as uh, bow impact on bow hunters and impact on overall hunters. So, I mean, those are kind of the hot topics right now. They most certainly are. You've been yeah. instrumental, and in, I know you've met with the commission. I know you've had um, been representing of uh, the BIA and ABA, um, and on top of just being a passionate hunter yourself, like most of us are, a lot of these topics are are crucial. Um, they hit us home, and if it impacts something that you've been working and striving for, and it comes out of sometimes out of thin air or what we perceive as thin air. Um, then it, it negatively impacts some of the hunts when you expect 200 tags to be in a, in a unit that's always had over-the-counter or, or 200 tags, and now it's dropped to 50 and no over-the-counter, then unfortunately that upsets a lot of us, um, those types of... Yeah, I, I think that, you know, obviously uh, what the commission did earlier this year in the spring uh, with eliminating over 30 archery hunting opportunities obviously was a surprise to a lot of us in Arizona because they're all, there are better alternatives to what their proposal is. And I think the important thing is getting the commission and the department to see the value in working with the public. Uh, you know, the unfortunate issue with the, hunt guidelines that came out in the spring is that by the time they put it out for public input, which is a 30 day window, that proposal has already been put to the commission. And it's very rare for the commission to go against what the department is suggesting. And so part of my goal in working with the commission now is trying to get them to open up that discussion to the public sooner so that we actually do have a say um, I was told, you know, that basically 
there wasn't much I could do to make a change, no matter how good my argument was. And I mean, it's unfortunate when you think that it's put out for public comment, you would think that it has the opportunity to, to maybe have some value to it. Otherwise, if, if you're asking for public comment that you can't use, there's no value in it and you lose the public and the public involvement, which I don't think that the game and fish department can afford to lose the public or the hunter's involvement. And so it's trying to work with them in a collaborative effort to, to do things better. Uh, obviously there's some other topics out there that have ruffled some feathers with the commission and are ruffled, ruffled feathers with the public from the commission and things that kind of came out of left field. And so, I mean, my hope moving forward is that this process can be exposed to the public sooner so that we can actually have a say in it. Um, I, I know that the people who evaluate the comments and the emails get some pretty off the wall comments because I've heard some of them, but they also get some pretty valuable comments from people who actually put effort and time into it. And so I think just going off of that, let's, the, you know, the, the thing that's important to understand is that the Game and Fish Commission evaluates hunt guidelines every five years. Those guidelines are set for a five-year window, and they basically are the blueprint for how the commission can manage hunt. Um, within those guidelines, they set, set hunt recommendations typically every two years. This last recommendation where we saw the elimination of 30 hunts was only for a year, which is probably a good thing. Um because obviously there's a lot of hunts that went away, but I think it's important to understand that the hunt guidelines, which open up really uh, for when they start making proposals and really putting things together is in January, but the commission has been on the, or not the commission, I, I kind of get the commission and the department mixed up. The department has been really working hard to come up with good ideas early in this process. Normally they would just be starting the process and they're kind of well into the process at this point in time. Um, you will see that on the 21st, so I believe that's Thursday, there's a webcast from 6 to 7 that's going to discuss some of the considered game management hunt guideline changes. A week after that, on the 28th, from 6 to 7, there's a webcast specifically focused on talking about archery deer uh, allocation. I think the important thing to, to understand is that my take, and I think everybody everybody knows my stance is that we can maintain over-the-counter archery hunts and maintain viable harvest uh, objectives and viable herds if we do it right. Part of that is having mandatory harvest reporting, which is something that the department has fought for a long time because mainly because they've been doing the same thing for nearly 50 years. So they have trend data that they like to refer to. Um, but just, because you've been doing something the same way for 50 years doesn't necessarily mean it's the right way to do it. And the one consistent thing through all the people that I've talked to, nearly all the organizations I've talked to, is that everybody agrees that mandatory harvest reporting is a must. There are a couple commissioners I know that are definitely strongly in favor of that, and I hope they speak up and have a voice uh, when it comes time to make these decisions. The consistent pushback on mandatory harvest reporting from the department uh, on top of what I mentioned when it comes to trend data is, oh, well, that's going to take an article change. It's going to take a rule change because if you force someone to report, there has to be a consequence. And, you know, I understand it's going to take changes, but right now those the article and rule changes are open. They can be changed. It's going to take time. It's going to be a process. 
but we need to do that. We need to have the accurate data to have 25% harvest reporting data and the basing hunt guidelines off of 25% reporting is not statistically strong, especially when we can have 100% or close to 100% harvest reporting. Uh, I do think the e-tag system that Game and Fish is going to is going to help that. Other states that have gone to an e-tag have shown about a 75% uh, 75% uh, participation rate in harvest reports. And so, but I, I still want more. I want mandatory harvest reporting. I think we deserve mandatory harvest reporting, and I think it's time for that change. And I, I think the sportsmen want it, and if we can, you know, get the commission to see the value in it, I definitely think we can uh, make those changes. And so I'm hopeful for that. I did meet with uh, a couple of the uh, hunt guidelines uh, supervisors who are responsible for really putting a lot of this together. We had a good conversation about kind of what the process is moving forward. I've been assured by not only those supervisors, but a couple commissioners that the department's not looking to get rid of over-the-counter archery deer tags. Um, I'm hopeful that that is the case because it's one of the best opportunities in the West that we have to offer. And with a little more involved management, we can continue to have it and everybody can continue to enjoy it. Not to mention the revenue that it generates for the, the department as well as Arizona's wildlife. It's something I don't believe that we want to give up, and especially if we don't have to. Absolutely. So that's, that's kind of a touch on, on some of that stuff. I think it'll be interesting to listen to and see those webcasts uh, Thursday and then the following Thursday. I think it's important that everybody understand that they, they can get involved. They can make recommendations to the commission uh, that is via email, and they do read them all. And it's azhuntguidelines at azgfd.gov. So you can send comments about, you know, the webcast or about concerns that you have. Everybody has different concerns, different values. Um, but in, in the end, I mean, my focus is trying to maintain over-the-counter archery hunts and then getting the department to recognize the value of mandatory harvest reporting. I would agree with that. So what's kind of confusing to me is we have mandatory reporting with a number of species, so like lion, bear, if you get a sheep, um, buffalo. Um, so why would there be pushback when we have proven success with some of the species and, and managing those aspects, but when it comes to archery deer or other species, there's pushback? Do you know the reason for that by chance? Why they wouldn't take the um, success of the one side and, and kind of discount it saying it won't work on the other side when they're highly successful and we have a track record of... I can, I can only speculate that, you know, you have 120 sheep tags, pretty easy to check 120 people. Very difficult to check 30,000 people. And so, and the fact that the common theme that I'm being told by certain people who I know have kind of a little bit of a preconceived notion to be against mandatory harvest reporting is the required changes to the articles and the rules that would be necessary. Uh, that seems to be kind of a pushback to that a little bit. And frankly, we hadn't had a commission. We haven't had a lot of commissioners that have really, I don't know, really focused on the importance of that data and the lack of the data that we have. And it, really hasn't mattered to hunters until all of a sudden they decide they're going to take away all these tags based on 25% harvest reporting. One thing I will plug in right now, and I think is really important, is that 
we as hunters have to complete our harvest reports. And mainly for over-the-counter hunts, we have to have to do that. Because if you don't do it, they are the, the way the formula works is that they are overestimating the number of deer harvests to protect the deer species in Arizona. So if you don't report, then it hurts us. And so we, we have to do better, and I think that we can do better. I'm hopeful we'll go to mandatory, but until that happens, I would like to see, you know, pushes from all of the organizations to put the information on social media, to get it out to people that, hey, here's the link for your over-the-counter deer hunt report. You need to go fill it out. It's super crucial, super important. Um, that, that's just a start in the, in the right direction. But, I mean, you know, to get back to your question, I think – there's a lot of value placed on a lot of people with a lot of experience. And if you have certain individuals who have kind of a preconceived notion that the mandatory harvest reporting is not necessary, you know, the commissioners all have other jobs. They're not, you know, they're involved and they do a lot with this, but they're not the experts. So they rely on the experts. And, you know, if you get an expert who has a preconceived notion that the data is good enough, then they kind of rely on that. And it takes a lot for a commissioner to kind of push back a little bit. And so my, my goal is working with the department to come up with good proposals for the commission because the department puts together a proposal and proposes it to the commission and then the commission makes a decision. And the way the normal process works is that once that 30-day window is open for comment, public comment, they've already proposed it to the commission. So whoever is trying to go against what the commission the department has proposed is basically trying to swim upstream so my goal is to hopefully work with the department to get the department to propose things that we support to the commission so we're not it doesn't look like we're trying to go against what the department wants to do that makes sense so a lot of the a lot of the comments we received kind of twofold one is um like you touched on earlier that it, it feels to a lot of people that everything that they say at these meetings, at the commissioner meetings, when they show up in person, when they write a letter, when they phone in and have to wait for hours, that a lot of your your time is precious. Um, time is money, as we all know. And it feels like it falls on deaf ears when you call in. If they already have their mind made up on a certain topic, and like you've touched on, if it's already been brought to their attention and if it's coming up for the commission to speak about, or to hold that public comment period on the 30 days. They've heard about it and or uh, discussed it, even though they're supposed to have opinions to themselves and not discuss it behind closed doors. You know, we all know what happens. I'm not accusing any of them of doing that, but it's just human nature. And if you already have your mind made up or you already have some sort of formulated idea of where you're going to go, then that's why I, I applaud the fact that you're trying to have those open comment periods earlier or at least be able to speak to the department, Arizona Game and Fish, as a whole prior to so that people can voice their concerns and at least feel that those concerns, your statements, how you, you know, how your recommendations from a, a hunting standpoint or from an organization standpoint doesn't uh, feel like it's, it's futile because if you go there and it is just a 30-day public comment period and they have the the open door policy and a lot of people can't make it to Payson or can't make it to Sierra Vista or Kingman or wherever they're going to have it. Um, then you're waiting on, on the phone forever. And then you already see that they have their idea or their recommendation made up. 
Um, those are some of the concerns that people have, have brought to us. And then the other aspect um, on the e-reporting or the harvest reporting is, have you heard or is it just a limited few that some people will concern and these are people that are in support of the mandatory harvest that if you're an archer and you have an over-the-counter and you're hunting in either January or, say, August and then you've applied for a rifle tag and you don't um, – you don't report it, and there is no mandatory reporting of that tag. You discount that one you get in the mail, um, and you don't have to account for anything. Then you can apply for when the the draw cycle opens for rifle deer, and successfully have two deer that year. Those are two comments that have been brought to our attention. If you can touch on those a little bit. Well, I mean, I definitely think uh, that I'll touch on your first first question. I definitely think that the, the game and fish and so the commission have, have not done a good job uh, making the public feel like they're valued in any of these processes. And it's unfortunate, but I do hope that they will start to show, you know, understand the value of the public in these processes and making their lives easier. I personally believe that the, the deer changes as well as the controversial trail camera issues could have, would have been a lot more accepted by some of the public had they been put out there earlier and allowed people to comment. I'm not saying that it would have changed anybody's mind, but it at least would have given people more opportunity to speak on the matter and feel like their, their, their comments were, were valuable. And so I hope and numerous letters and emails that I've written to the commissioners and in conversations I've had is trying to explain to them the value of the public and the value of bringing a concern to the public and saying, hey, this is the problem we're experiencing. What do you guys think? How do you think we can address this? And then seeing what the public says and then coming up with some sort of a formalized discussion plan on what they want to talk about. For example, if it was the over-the-counter archery deer hunt, you, they could have put out to the public, hey, we're extremely concerned about deer numbers because the drought, because of the survey data, because of the fact that during COVID, everyone spent crazy amounts of time in the field and the deer success went way up. So we're super concerned about it. What do you think we should do? And if people understand that during that, that's what they're, they're trying to solve that problem. There are good solutions out there that the public can provide. For example, if they're going to go, the only choices they had was to eliminate hunt or go to a draw based on the hunt guidelines. Cause that's what was defined in the guidelines. And I would rather them have at least offered the tags, who are going to draw and completely get rid of them, at least for this season. But they chose to get rid of them, and there was no discussion about any other options to deal with it. So that was a problem, and, and that is why people feel like they their opinion doesn't matter. And I'll be honest, there's a lot of people who have been around a lot longer than me who have kind of taken on and fought the battle that I'm trying to, to fight right now. And all of them tell me the same thing. Basically, it's good luck. They're not going to listen to you. But I just have a hard time believing that. 
and I'm stubborn, and I'd like to think that the commission's, you know, willing to open their eyes and look at some of the other topics and discussion points. I mean, one thing I'll tell you that's important to understand is that just because a guy is on the Arizona or, or a woman is on the Arizona Gaming Fish Commission does not mean that they're a hunter, does not mean that they have any clue about hunting or that they have any clue about how the draw process works. 100%. And so I, I think that's important to understand is that, you know, because I've been hunting my whole life and, I, and I'm in the numbers and I pay attention to all this stuff, I understand how this draw works. But I would tell you that the commissioners don't have that luxury. A lot of them don't understand that and it's not their only focus remember they got to deal with fisheries they got to deal with wildlife projects they got to deal with all sorts of you know migratory birds all sorts of other things and no one can be an expert on all of it so they're relying on you know the wildlife managers and the region supervisors and people to provide them the best information possible and it's important that they open those dialogues up with the public because some of us actually have a lot of knowledge in those set fields and can at least help express and open up some discussion. I mean, I, I know I had a discussion with the commissioner about some things that I thought were pretty common knowledge, and I was able to explain them to him, but it was just not something that he understood or had ever dealt with or looked into. So, I mean, there's a lot that goes on with those commissioners, a lot that they have to do. They basically have a full-time career, and then they have a full-time commission job, which they don't get paid for, and, you know, they're making decisions you know, based on the expert advice that they're given, and they're trying to do the best that they can. Hey, Brian, so, that's a great point. Do you want to kind of explain to the listeners of how Game of Fishes operates, so how the commissioners are basically selected and how they represent the department and how they work? So I don't. I think there's a misunderstanding of the role and how the commissioners are selected and how they influence the department. Do you want to kind of give like a 20,000-foot level of what that process looks like. Yeah, I'll give a little, a little overview of that. I mean, I'm not an expert in it, but basically there's five commissioners. They represent different regions in the state. There can only be a certain makeup as far as um, political party. Um, they can't have all Republicans, all Democrats, all independents. And so, for example, Kurt Davis is getting ready to be term termed out. And so their, the application process is just closed for um, his position. And I think tomorrow the selection committee meets and reviews all the applications and then makes a determination on what individuals are going to call in for a public interview or for an interview, which will be with the commission selection committee. And it will be, you know, on, it'll be webcasted so people can ask questions or, or endorse um, certain commissioners. My uncle is actually running for data spot. His name's Bob Rimza. You know, he's a lifelong Arizona, you know, very knowledgeable in hunting. And, I mean, obviously that, that would be my my pick personally. But I don't know all the other ones. I just happen to know him, and, and I know his values in line with my values. But basically once the committee selects a group of individuals, they'll come in for a uh, oral interview in front of the panel. And then based on that interview, Typically, the panel, and I, I'm not 100% on all this, but makes a recommendation of a couple people, you know, one to, one to three people, I think, to the governor, and then the governor appoints one. And they may make a recommendation on just one person, and then the governor will make that appoint, appointment. And so what I think is important to understand in the way the commission works is that these commissioners represent 
all sorts of communities. Obviously, Kurt Davis represents Phoenix, which is a giant community, and Kurt Davis has a lot of uh, involvement in politics. I mean, he's been around. He's been involved in lobbying and things like that his whole life. But then you have other guys who are from very small towns in Arizona um, and, you know, may not have that same experience, but they have a lot of experience in cattle and ranching. So they try to have a diverse group of individuals in the commission. And what I think your listeners need to understand, and we all need to understand why they do the process the way they do and why it is not simply a voted by people process is because if they did just straight vote on who got the commission spot, it would become very, very political. Money would have a lot to do with who gets elected and it would probably most definitely not be the best for Arizona's wildlife because if you get someone who just can, can kind of sort of say buy their way into the position, but they don't care anything about wildlife and they want to get rid of hunting, there could be a lot of problems. So that's kind of why they do it that that way. Um, whether you like it or don't like it, there's definitely an understanding need for it because candidates with the most money generally win elections. So if you get someone with a lot of financial backing and they're supported by an anti-hunting group, that could be problematic for all of us for in sure. Arizona. So that's that's kind of the process. And another misconceived nomer is that the director of Game and Fish although he's the director of Game and Fish, he answers to the commission. So it's not like he's telling the commissioners what to do. The commissioners are telling him what to do. And so that's another misnomer kind of out there uh, when you see people who are upset at the director, upset at the commission. It's not his say to to change what the commission does. The commission basically is, are his boss. So just just some things to, to, to understand because it's kind of a weird way to to run an organization it is it is and we're glad that you shed light on a little bit of that like you said not all of that is um none of us are 100 percent experts on how those processes work i've seen that a lot of the times the commission does the whole or game and fish as a department holds those interviews they could get 10 applications they narrow it down to usually two or three um like you said that are from diverse backgrounds whether they be hunting, non-hunting, uh, whatever political party, and then provide those to the governor and right. their uh, governor staff and whatnot and and whoever's governor at that time does do uh, their due diligence, hopefully, and, and and looks into that and sees who the the rest of the appointees are and, and picks someone. But as you very well said, they they could come from a cattle industry, and if you're from southern Arizona – and and that's your your focus, like one of the the commissioners currently. Then they're not going to be concerned as much of uh, over the counter deer in central Arizona, in you know nineteen A and twenty and twenty one or or whatnot, or right. deer populations on on the strip and buffalo. That's their focus is southern Arizona and water resource and potentially migratory birds and using uh, state funds for. Uh, water rehabilitation and, and, and grazing rights and, and whatnot. So right. it is important to have a diverse background, but um, being the the agency and the commission that tells the agency ultimately during those open rule processes, it, it like you said, it is frustrating if some of them don't come. We do need that diverse background, but 
if they have a working knowledge of hunting and the draw application and the success that archery isn't um, near as high a success as rifle and even on the over-the-counter. I mean, a lot of people come here. There are a lot of people from outside of Arizona that publicize the the rut hunts as an over-the-counter opportunity. Um, that's time for another topic, but it's, it's important that not only is the, our revenue generated for Game and Fish from sportsmen, but all those towns and all those cities – are impacted by that as well uh, from a revenue standpoint and from a business standpoint. A lot of people don't think about that. They think about, you know, I didn't get my tag. And and not to discount that, that is important. We, we want our tags, but everything is impacted, you know, from something as small as you getting your tag and it being a, a, a singular focus to a city not getting – you know, 20 out-of-towners or 20 people from outside of that particular city, and even they could be from Arizona, and they're going down there. This is where we've always hunted. I love those coos deer during January, and now you can't get it. Or if the focus does take those over-the-counter opportunities away and they only go to a draw process and people don't do their harvest reports, then they have that preconceived notion, like you said, that everybody is successful. And if you don't fill those out, then then they're not getting that up-to-date information. They're not getting that data that they can use or that we can lobby and we can use from a sportsman's and hunting standpoint from our organizations like CHA or BIA or ABA. And you don't have a, a leg to stand on because you don't have any of that information to provide in order to back up some of your arguments. If you say, you know, that a 1,000 people went out in whatever, 35 35B and targeted XYZ uh, species and no one, you know, 10% fill out their harvest report and 3% of those were successful, but those other 90% that didn't fill it out, I don't know where Game and Fish comes up with their formula, but if they say, okay, that's on average 40, um, then those statistics are going to be skewed because they think almost 43% of those animals were successfully harvested and it could be really down to 20%. So then they're cutting those stats off or they're cutting those applications off, correct me if I'm wrong, because they believe that the success rate is higher and because people aren't filling out those harvest reports, then all of them could be, you know, negative success, negative success. But if the game and fish as a whole believes that you were or they're weighing it in on the the percentage of probability that, okay, 40 out of 100 got it, that's going to hurt you in the future because you don't want to fill out that, that slip and, and mail it back in, correct? Well, I think the biggest issue in what you're trying to say is that the, the data is available to us. We should, be ha- we should have it and we should use it. There's no stance that, that I, I don't see a valid argument or a stance that the data is good enough at 25%. But it's not. We're in 2021. We have the ability to collect it 100% of the time. And the fact is is that I, I don't know how you can justify or stand up in front of a group of people, especially if it was a legal standpoint, and try and justify your 25% for what you're doing. So the ability to do better is there. We need to do it. And, and that's the fact of the matter is. And, and the cuts, like you talk about the non-resident issues, like I'm all for 
non-resident hunters. I, I don't, you know, but we have to have some regulation on them. And the fact that all of the guys in the northwest corner of the state, your Kingman bow shops, your Kingman bow hunters, they're the ones that got completely railroaded this year for over-the-counter deer hunting. That, that, the Kingman bow shop up there, their primary sale is during December, January deer hunt. That's where they make all their money because there's no elk really right outside of Kingman. It's not an elk hunting hotspot. Right. So when you take that away, you basically kneecap that organization. You take it all the way from those bow hunters who live in Kingman, and now they got to drive almost the same distance as a non-resident does just to hunt their own state. And so it's just not right. There's a better way to do it, and we can definitely do it. And it's something that's important um, to address. I think to talk about the other question you asked me about, basically dual harvest of deer if guys don't report there's always that possibility but remember nobody's managing for the one percenters right you know what i mean we're not managing for the one percent of criminals or the one percent of people who do illegal stuff we're managing for the good people out there do i think it happens sure do i think it's out of control where people are killing two deer a year i don't um, and, and I know that it's been expressed and definitely if it was mandatory harvest reporting, it would make it easier because if they don't report and they kill the deer. And I mean, today's world, everybody posts everything on social media. Hell, it's, they probably put it on social media before they freaking put their tag on their animal. That's the way that we work today. And so, I mean, every, there's no secret. We all know what's going on. Right. So, I mean, True. I, I think it's, you know, a mute point in the fact that I don't think there's that many people out there that are killing two deer. Um, does it happen? Sure. But I, I don't think it's a huge concern. No, I agree. And, and I think the people that have brought it up to, to us as a topic didn't feel, um, if I conveyed that as like, that was a hot topic, people that have brought that up at our seminars or that have reached out to us, brought it up just as a talking point only as that's another reason in favor of the mandatory harvest that um, no matter how small of the the percentage of population that potentially do that, it could alleviate that, that, okay, if, if you got one in January and exactly like you said, uh, pictures and social media, like it or love it, uh, they don't lie when there's a picture of you with that animal if uh, a friend posted or if you posted. And if you got that archery deer in January and you put in for a rifle tag, it, it's going to come out. Like you said, it is the 1%. Um, right. It, it is a very, very small percent, even if it is one. But it's just another valid point in favor of that mandatory harvest. Can you talk a little bit about, um, like, how would they require that? And this is a, a question that uh, has been presented to us numerous times, and, and I find it interesting because I don't know all the answer when it has been asked. If you're in an area with no cell service and they get rid of, you know, a, a hand tag or, you know, a paper tag, at what point immediately when you get cell reception or how does that come into effect that you are aware of on uh, reporting that animal? If you can, if you can touch on that a little bit. So uh, Luke Thompson and his team with Game of Fish are the ones I believe who are responsible for some of that stuff. Um, but my understanding is that once you have service, you'd be required to upload the information. I know there's been a little discussion about being able to kind of like 
upload the information at the site and it, it'd be sitting in, so to say, like an outbox in your email. And then once you get service, it automatically sends it out. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So it would have like a timestamp so, uh, on it. Right. And, and let's be honest. I mean, like they're not, I don't think they're looking to jam you up. Um, but you have to, you know, if you have service and you haven't reported it, then that'd be like a, and that would be a violation. Just like if you went out and you killed a deer and you got so caught up in taking pictures that you put it on your back and you carried it to the truck, even though it was a hundred yards and you didn't put the tag on it, you're probably going to have a problem with the game and fish officer. If you haven't put your tag on it and you moved it from where you killed it, even though it's a hundred yards to your truck. Correct. So, I mean, it, I don't think that they're looking to, to hammer people on that. And I mean, people may disagree with me, but they're going to, it's going to be their app. They know there's going to be issues. They know there's going to be, um, service coverage issues and i mean i'll be interested to see when it gets up because we know that game of fish's it hasn't always been that good especially in 2020 but on that we've talked kind of like some of the struggles about game of fish and some of the things that they've been trying that we're hoping to get better with something i think that we can kind of talk about that they're doing well and i some people are going to disagree with me on this and I'm simply talking about the like their Arizona's draw process. If you apply in other states and you you have the the, the benefit of knowing how those states operate, Arizona has one of probably the fairest processes of any state in the West. And what I mean by that is that they every person who applies every year, no matter what tag you choose has a chance to draw a tag. And I don't think people understand that. And I can tell you that if you've never been the benefactor of an awesome random tag that you never expected to draw, then it's hard to see it. But every person every, that submits an application for a hunt has a chance to draw that tag. And there, I don't know that there's, other than New Mexico, which has crazy restrictions on non-residents, I don't know that there's another state that's like that. Right. And so I think it's important for people to understand that, one, you always have a chance. Some people are just luckier than others, and sometimes it sure doesn't seem random. I mean, I'll admit that. I've been on the receiving end of some great tags that I I don't know that I deserved, but I took them. And, you know, so that's something I think is important to understand, that you always have a shot. It may be small, but you always have a shot. Yep. The other thing that I hear a lot from people is that people will tell me, oh, I had I had 15 bonus points and I didn't draw my, my cow up tag this year. And I'll tell you right now, like, that's not possible. There, You can tell every year whether you're going to draw a tag or not. If you're in the max pool for that hunt, you will draw the tag. End of story. There's no question about it. You can look it up, the information under the bonus point process tab on the Game and Fish website, but you can look at it and determine if you fall in the max point category. And if you don't want to look it up because it takes some number crunching and stuff, you can join uh, Go Hunt or Hunt and Fool or any of those application services, and they'll tell you how many points it takes you to draw the tag. But you can – there's – there's a guaranteed point where you will draw the tag every year. And just give you an example, 
I put in this year for my with my dad for a hunt that takes eight bonus points. I knew that we would draw the tag for elk, and we didn't draw the tag, and I was super surprised. Well, that's when I realized when we realized that Game and Fish had some serious issues with the draw, and that's IT stuff. Remember, their draw itself, the way it works, when it, when it works, is really good. But their IT issues were problematic. I was able to show Game and Fish, hey, this is how many points I had. I should have drawn the tag in the max. They looked into it. They agreed. They gave me a tag. And that happened to a handful of people that I know. So understand that, like, if you put in for these tags with a bunch of points and you, and you feel you should draw, there's a way to look it up. And they have to issue 20% of the tags to the people with the most points. So, you know, when, when people tell me that, man, I had 20 points and I put in for an archery six-day bull tag, and I didn't get drawn, and the game of fishes draw system is crap. Well, six day takes like eight or nine points for an archery hunter in Arizona, a resident to draw. So I know that whatever they did, they didn't apply for six day, and they surely didn't have 20 points. Right. So it's just something to understand that like their system is really good. I hope um, something that I would like to address at some point with game of fish is looking at pushing that percentage to 30 or 40 percent. So giving 30 or 40 percent of the tax to guys with max points as opposed to 20, um, I think that the goal, I think Gamer Fish's goal should be to eliminate point creep as much as possible. And point creep is basically where every year, if the highest person has 20 points in it for deer, the next year it goes up to 21 and 22. Um, I think that if we issue 30 to 40 percent of the tax to guys in the max, I would even go as far as say to issue half the tag to guys with max points that we would start uh, eliminating that point creep. And by doing that, it would give people the opportunity to draw tags with less points and it would give our kids the opportunity to, to draw some coveted tags without having to wait 15 to 20 years to get like a unit nine archery bull tag. You know, you might, you'd be able to knock that down. To, I think 12 to 13 points over four, five or six years once we start you know, getting issuing more tags to those guys with max points. But I haven't addressed that with Game and Fish, you know, wholeheartedly yet just because my focus has been on this over-the-counter deer tag situation and trying to see if we can come to a resolution that they'll uh, they'll consider. But, I mean, I know they've increased the permit or the percentage. It was 10% when I was a kid applying, and now it's 20%. Um, I think it should go up to 40 or 50%. It would benefit all the old timers who have tons of points and are waiting on that tag. Um, and I, you know, frankly, we haven't done a lot to benefit the old timers that have been putting it for years. You know, we have youth hunts and things like that. So it would just be a benefit to all those guys. And I hope they consider it at some point in time, but that's a little bit off topic of what we were talking about, but I just wanted to touch on it. No, that's a great point. I'm just thinking like, like as a pilot, what about sheep? You know, why not make 50% of all sheep tags go to your highest bonus point people? Cause like you said, we have people waiting their lifetimes to have that opportunity for sheep, and why not start there and, and give them that opportunity? I mean, that's that's a great point. I mean, just I never even thought about it that way. Or well, even, I mean, the reality is I don't ever want to see a guy who's been putting in for 25 or 30 years, I don't want to see him die with a pile of points. Exactly. And I don't want to see him be too old to even enjoy the hunt. Exactly. And so, sure, you may have a guy who only wants to hunt 22, and so he only puts in for those hunts, but if you – if you gave half the tags, then you would have guys who could consider some of the 
maybe lesser desirable trophy hunts, but still have an incredible hunt in Tillaram and not, you know, and still be able to get around and function. And so I hope it's something that Game of Fish looks at. I think it's kind of a minimal change um, to their process. But, I mean, there's a lot going on with them right now with the hunt guidelines changes and trying to figure out what they're going to do. And so we'll see. Um, I just I definitely think it's something that's beneficial and it not only benefits the older generation, but also benefits the new and up-and-coming hunters, giving them the opportunity to draw some of these better tags. On the, the IT aspect, I know a lot of people, there was a lot of heartache with either being triple charged or not charged. And if, if they didn't do their due diligence like you did and say, hey, I know if this takes eight, I had nine or I had 10 and we, we put in as a party hunt, we averaged out at nine, all of us should have gotten this tag. If they don't do that, um, is there any talk of from the Game and Fish, from the IT standpoint of they're not going to overcharge people or... There, is there any resolve in upgrading or making sure that some of those errors that were replicated last year and the beginning of this year aren't replicated again? Is there any talk about that? Well, I haven't been really privy to those conversations because it's not been my focus. Um, but what I would say is they're a government entity. Right. And government entities always – either go with a low bid or they try to do something in-house to save money Yep. because it's always revolved around the budget. And frankly, they have not shown that they can handle it in the, the last two draw cycles. We'll see what happens with turkeys this year um, and javelina, but they definitely completely botched the last two draw cycles. And, you know, that's all done in-house. That whole IT system is in-house. And if there's one thing that would be well worth the money to spend, it would be to, to outsource that because there are other states that outsource it and it runs flawlessly. But they continue to operate like many government entities do, operating on a budget, trying to go low bid or keep things in-house that they just aren't talented enough to do. Um, I'm, very, I'm very interested to see how this app works for, for the e-tag because based on their track record with IT stuff, I'm I'm a little skeptical, to say the least, that they can pull it off and do it the way it needs to be done. Right. How many people do you think were in your same boat as a guesstimate on whether had the, the points and either should have drawn and didn't and had to go back and, and show proof versus how many people legitimately got it if you if you can do a guesstimate on that how many people do you think were I mean, a part I, of that area i know three so i know three applicants applications that had that mistake mine of course and then two other people whose applications were um messed up and i don't know i probably know a decent number of people that hunt and people that reach out to me so i mean you got to figure with the number of percentage it's, it's got to be somewhere in that one to three percent i don't think it's much more than that um as far as them not issuing a tag to someone who had the max point and should have been issued a tag because inherently guys who are in that boat know it and they usually pay attention to it correct and there were some other issues that definitely no one will notice um for sure in this in the elk that happened during the elk and deer, the elk and antelope draw. 
where they issued points to people that did they issued a hunter education or a loyalty point to someone who didn't have didn't meet the qualifications for those hunts um and that definitely skewed who got tagged i know one of the applications that i did for a friend they gave him his hunter education and his loyalty bonus point and by doing that it it pushed him into the bonus path so the max pool for that hunt which he would not have been eligible for so he ended up drawing a tag in the bonus path that he should not have drawn um, because they gave him uh, a hunter education and a loyalty point that he hadn't earned and they didn't so rescind that right those, they did they honored it no they don't i mean well i'm not I, it's not like I called them up and said, "Hey, you guys screwed this up." Right, right, right. right. Specific name. They didn't catch their error, there though. De- well, there are definitely people though that should have probably drawn a tag. They got bumped out because of that. Um, and then you would. There's no way to show that unless they're going to go back and look at every single application, which was like eighteen thousand applications, I think, for for elk alone or something like that. Something crazy. So like, they're not going to do that. Right. But I mean. You got to hope it gets better. I can tell you 20, the draws that we saw in 2021 are the worst draws that I've seen in my entire life Agreed. as a hunter in Arizona. I've never seen mis- mistakes like they made um, from the double charging of people to, you know, issuing points to people that didn't have points. And, you know, this, we all know their portal system is an absolute, just the most unuser, the most non-user friendly system that one could possibly have come up with Agreed. for doing what we do and it's you know their it guy i know told oh it's the safest you know people can't take your stuff man i don't even care at this point when i have to do 30 applications and it takes me three days to do them because i have to input everyone's social security number 65 times it's crazy yep I, but it's we just, couldn't agree more i mean yeah and so i mean but they gotta make you know, they have to want to make it better. And I mean, I I don't think they want to spend that money. It'll be interesting because they're going to know before they make these proposals for the hunt guidelines and the -the over-the-counter deer hunts. If they just example were to go to a draw as opposed to over-the-counter statewide, it's going to cost the department three to $500,000 a year. And I don't know where they're going to make that money up because they can't afford that. Nope. Um, especially when all their money comes from us. Right. So that's something to be, um, to be aware of. One other thing I'll touch on, and then I've got, I've got to run, but, uh, something I want to touch on is that I don't know if anybody saw it, but they just, the game and fish department just came out with a hunter ethics course, Yes. which the benefit to this thing is, you can get your loyal or your hunter education bonus point or hunter ethics bonus point without having to come to the state and attend an in-person class. So it doesn't, you don't get another bonus point on top of your hunter education point. This is for people who don't have a hunter education point and would like the opportunity to earn that point without having to go to a field day. They can do the whole course online it's 150 bucks for residents and 300 bucks for non-residents. So this is going to be something that's extremely beneficial for non-residents because now they don't have to travel to Arizona to take a hunter education course. And the benefit 
to keeping them out of the, the adults out of the field day, because a lot of adults were just taking the field day simply to get the bonus point, is that now we can put more kids in these classes, which is ultimately what they're for. They're not for adults. They're for kids, but adults would take them because they, that was the only way that they could get that hunter education point, and we all know the value of an extra point. Exactly. So it's a full online class. I believe it's a 10-hour course you know, that you work through, just different modules. You don't have to sit through it all at one time. 150 bucks if you're a resident, $300 if you're a non-resident. I think you have to complete it within 60 days prior to the draw that you're, to get your point. And so for those who want that extra point for the upcoming elk and antelope draw, which will be in uh, late January, early February, you need to get on the ball and get that thing done so that you can get that extra point. Because if you're a non-resident, or a resident, one point can mean a lot in drawing a tag. Have they brought back the field days? I know they'd taken them away. So that was a, that's a great question. I haven't been on it for about two weeks. Um, I have a nephew who had a youth tag, and so I was concerned what we can do to get him through a field day. And once we called, I got it on a couple different accords. We were told, look, as long as he's with, um, you know, a licensed adult and he's taking the online course, then, you know, kind of like just like they did through COVID, the, the kid's good to go. Good. And so Great. I was hoping they would put that out on the website because I think they should have. Um, but I, I got it from multiple different people making sure that they were good. Because I didn't, you know, I'm not trying to break any rules. But they, right. there was no opportunity for these kids who went on these first deer hunts to get that hunter to get that field day out of the way and get it done. And so that's, that's where they were at um, with that. I know obviously they're working back to probably going to a field day, but I don't know that they've opened it back up yet. Okay. For everybody listening, just try to look on Arizona Game and Fish, uh, their website, and we are looking for those preference points, um, whether it be the, the bonus point, that's what you're going to be looking under. Those hunter education that we're talking about for everybody that's not familiar it's going out, taking a test, or doing all your online studying and taking an in-person written test and walking through uh, several field exercises demonstrating the fact that you know proper firearm safety or proper shoot-don't-shoot shoot scenarios, um, manipulation, um, and whatnot. It, it, it is simple, but it's, it is beneficial. Um, hopefully, they do bring those back and they have those outdoor gatherings so that the kids and, and new hunters become... Uh, more refreshed with that information and, and, and have safer hunts and safer kids knowing how to handle those firearms. I know you got to run, Brian. Um, we really, really appreciate all the information that you shared with us. I'm sure we'll have you on for, for future topics. Um, any parting words that you want to leave with us before you before you leave? I did have one other question, Brian, okay. um, if we Sorry. can circle back. Yeah. Yeah, so on the archery deer, how do they determine the success rate that they want to obtain? So I've heard a lot of different philosophies on that. So let's say it's, you know, unit 22 or 23. How do they determine how many deer that they want to have as an objective for archery hunters to harvest? Do you know how they come up with that number? Or is it, or is it, yeah, is it based so on rifle hunters? hunters? Yeah, archery hunters are allocated 20% of the total deer killed in a unit. So, and that 20% um, is based, so the, the way the 20% number was established is they took the total number of rifle tags 
that are offered throughout the state and then divided it by the um, the way it's 20% of the total deer harvested in a unit and it's based off of it's so if, if the rifle hunters killed 75 and the archery hunters killed 25 in a unit and that would that's 100 total deer 25 are archery hunters so there's the archery hunter success is 25% and so their allocation is only 20% for that those so we would be five deer over allocation um, but uh, you know there's a, there's obviously a formula they use because they don't get that good of harvest reporting data to to extrapolate all that information correct so the main Does thing that answer your question yeah so the main thing is archery hunters have to know that we're only allocated 20% of the rifle hunter success uh, per their formula year after year per unit is how they make that determination. Well, 20% of the total deer harvested, so 20% of all the deer harvested, yes. Of that unit? Yes. Correct. Okay. Thank and you. I'm not sure why they allocate. I mean, I know where the 20% came from. I'm just not sure why they, they feel that is a, an adequate number. I know they have recalculated that number because they hadn't recalculated that 20% since, like, last, since 2008. And when they recalculated it with the information from, I, from, I believe it was from the 2020 season, it was like 19%, 19.5% based on their formula of what we should be, grant, should be allowed to hunt. And, you know, the thing with all my proposals is, one, I'm not taking tags away from anybody. I'm not proposing taking tags from my partners, anybody else, or anything of that nature. I'm just proposing a more active way to manage it so that we can continue to have the OTC hunt while staying within whatever parameters they set, whether I agree with the parameters or not. Um, and it's, it's totally doable. Like, it can be done. It can be done success, successfully, and it has been done in other states. It's just going to take some innovation from the department to be willing to, to implement changes that they haven't done in a long time. understand. Great information. All right, so we appreciate it. We're going to let him go, and as we always do, we pray before we go. So, Lord God in heaven, we just uh, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come and talk about conservation efforts, Lord, and to partner with our Arizona Game and Fish Department and our commission, Lord. We just ask that uh, us as hunters and conservationists, Lord, and, and representatives of different organizations, Lord, that we can come to the table, Lord, and have logical, proactive discussions, Lord, to, to bring real changes, Lord, for what's best for wildlife in Arizona. And I just ask that you'd bless all of our listeners, Lord, and, and bless Brian and his family. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Brian.